0: If in popular culture there were a place that it might be expected for a pastor to restrain his lips, it would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. When it tells women to be silent in the churches, it is not something that generally gains a popular favor or following, but we will plainly deal with the text as it is written, as revealed from God. Now, one thing I want to do before moving into chapter 14 is talk to you a little bit about chapter 13, verse 13, which I failed to explain last time, though I had it written on my outline. And so, what I want to do is to talk briefly about it. You'll remember in chapter 13, we talked about the fact that there is a, a cessation of some gifts and a continuation of others. So far, where that lands, we had in the beginning of 1 Corinthians the first nine verses as an introduction. Chapters 1 through 4 are essentially about authority, unity, division, and right and wrong, honor, and how we know anything. And we get into chapters 5 and 6, and we deal with church courts and civil courts and the relationship of them. Chapter 7 deals with questions of marriage. And then we get into chapters 8 through 14, which is written in a way that is viewed as confusing by most people. Um, And what we have is two matters, food and public order, things dear to my heart. And we see those two subjects dealt with in an interwoven way. And so, in the question of food, there's the food devoted to idols, the wages for officers, and the Lord's table. And in the questions of public order, there's men and women, hair, head coverings, gifts of the spirit, and the idea of two or three witnesses coming to speak, the way that men and women should operate in the public assembly, and how questions should be dealt with. And so, all of that is discussed. And so, We'll be getting into some of that, but at the very end of chapter thirteen, it talks about faith, hope, and bud uh, and love. Bud, faith, hope, and love abide; these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay, so and now abide faith, hope, and love; these three, but the greatest of these is love. And so it is. You might ask yourself, well, how, how do we make how is love the greatest of them? If the purpose of life is to glorify God, and principally we glorify God by knowing Him, then shouldn't faith be the greatest one? Well, the idea here is the goal is the thing that is maximal, the thing that is highest. Faith is the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is necessary for us to have life, and we should always be pursuing it it will generate in us hope. Hope is a confident desire for something. And so we have confidence that all of the things that God has promised will be fulfilled. And so, in having hope, we are motivated to pursue a goal. Troops are more motivated when they think they can win. Workers are more motivated when a task seems achievable and there's a reward. And so what we have is faith in the revealed Word, which teaches us, that we are on the way to victory, that we have victory, that it will be obtained, and that there are rewards for doing it. And we are also told that love, obedience to the law, the application of the law, pursuing the good of each other and of God, that those things are the means that we apply. And so faith gives us the doctrine to know. Hope gives us the motivation and allows us to know the direction that we are trying to accomplish. And love is the application of those means and it's the desire of the well-being of the object but the application of the means, the obedience to the law. And the reason that love is the greatest is because it is the final. It is the product. It is the end of the line. Knowledge matures you so that you have motivation towards the goal and so that you then do the work. And the doing of the work is what love is. And so the greatest one is love. You know God, great there are many people in the United States of America that have the knowledge of God and they're useless. There are supposedly 30 million evangelicals in this country. If there were 30 million people who were actually seeking to apply the law of God, the world would be turned upside down. They don't have the fruit of love. They might be saved, but they don't have the fruit of love. And so one of the reasons they don't have the fruit of love is because evangelicalism has pounded the ears of people that the work is hopeless and that to try to do anything to reform society is to polish doorknobs on the Titanic. Right? We are sinking. That's the, that's the message. The truth is that we're going to be here for a while to the thousandth generation and so we better get working. And so having confidence that we will win, knowing that there's a long-term vision and a lot of work to do, that makes us have hope and it gives us a direction and gives us a proper strategic position. And it motivates love. And you go, I'm going to be here, my kids are going to be here, so I better do something useful. I better set something up. I better help to create a culture that sets things in the right direction. And when you think about this as a journey that's going to last for a while, you start to think, you know, correcting it by a couple of degrees is going to change where we end up in a few thousand years by a lot. you've heard this before but if you're in an airplane you're traveling across the atlantic if you go a few degrees to the north or to the south and you're heading you will find that it dramatically alters which part of europe you end up in now if you want to be in the cold a couple degrees to the north will do it you want to be in the sunny mediterranean a couple of degrees to the south will do it but the direction can be altered quite a bit and so if you want to see A culture that's influenced a couple of degrees upward 500 years from now versus a culture that's that's modified in terms of its trajectory by a couple of degrees downward, it's pretty dramatic. So, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. You manifest love because you know that doing what God commands is what matters. It's useful. And that will cause you to have more faith. As you apply the law of God, it opens up your eyes more. There are promises that as you apply the little that you do know, it causes you to know more. Pastor Jeffrey Botkin likes to say, apply 1% of the stuff you know. Just apply 1% of the stuff you know. Because, I mean, you're not. Just apply 1% of it, and you will find that it dramatically alters your own life, and it will dramatically alter your own understanding. So you just pick something to start applying, and you will find that you deepen your faith, it increases your hope, and that that expression of love toward God and toward neighbor has a reforming effect on the things around you. So that's the way in which the greatest of these is love. It is the last in the chain. It is the highest. It is the fruit. It is the thing being worked toward. It glorifies God by increasing our own knowledge of God, and it glorifies God by causing the showing and the manifesting, and it makes our witness more powerful to other people. It causes them to believe that we're not just hypocrites. That's why love So, chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love. Chase it. Hunt it down. Pursue love. And desire spiritual gifts. Remember, when you see spiritual gifts, think Holy Spirit gifts. Gifts from the Holy Spirit. So pursue love and desire Holy Spirit gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Regrettable. None of us is going to have the gift of prophecy. That one's gone. We just read that, chapter 13. right? It's gone. So what's the closest thing to it? The closest thing to it now is teaching. Yes, nailed it. Right? I'm getting to do that right now. It's fantastic. And so, we look at that and we say, alright, I need to know the Scriptures so well that I can... Teach them clearly to other people. That's what we should all strive for. And so all the stuff you see about prophecy, this is something preachers don't want you to know, so lean in. All of the rules about prophecy also restrain public teaching. And all the rules about interpretation also restrain public teaching. So William Perkins, a Puritan, Those troublemaking Puritans. William Perkins wrote a book called The Art of Prophesying. And it's actually, to the disappointment of Charismatics Everywhere, a book about preaching. And his point is that when you're preaching, what you're doing is you're just going through the Bible, interpreting prophecy, and then prophesying that to the congregation. You are explaining the Word of God to the congregation. And so in that interpretive effort of taking the Word of God and proclaiming it, that is fulfilling the utility of prophesying to the church. And since we have a complete canon, we don't need any new prophecies. And so it is sufficient to teach from the complete prophecy. So pursue love and desire Holy Spirit gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue... Does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. Okay, let's pause here for a second. The idea of tongues. Acts chapter 2 is a very important chapter for understanding the doctrine of tongues. What you have occurring in Acts chapter 2 is you have a bunch of people, Holy Spirit comes upon them. They prophesy. They prophesy in languages that aren't their natural languages. They're not the languages they were raised in. It's not their first language. not their second language. They're not their third language. It's their spiritual language, which is not like a spirit guide. It is a language that the Holy Spirit causes you to speak that you didn't learn. Now, here's the thing. When you do that, you actually understand what you're saying. You actually understand what you're saying. And as you understand what you're saying... You can either put your mind to trying to remember it so you can interpret it for people, or not. Also, you can have somebody who has the gift of being able to understand supernaturally, and they can interpret, or they could naturally understand the language, and they could interpret it. These are all ways you could have interpretation. But the speaking in tongues itself is a Holy Spirit empowered speaking of another language. That's the word, that's what it means. So if somebody wants to make this into ecstatic speech, they want to make it into some mysterious, unthinking, sound-making. That is not the doctrine of tongues. That is not a tongue. And if we read what Paul says, it's going to be very, very clear that that's not the doctrine of tongues of the Bible. So, verse 2, For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Why is that? Is that because it's some sort of spiritual prayer language that only God gets? No. Have you heard that? Have you heard that charismatic doctrine? Okay. That is not the idea here. The idea is God knows all the languages, all of them, even Cleon. And in knowing all of the languages, he gets it. You say the thing, he understands it. And nobody else does. Nobody else does, unless they already know the language, unless they can have an interpreter, for no one understands him, right? That's why you're speaking to God. It, it's meant to be a, it's like, it's like a rhetorical punch. It's a joke. It's like you're not talking to anybody except for God. Right? That's that's the point of what he's saying. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries, right? And that's in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit, he speaks mysteries. So you've got this guy up here speaking in another language, and he's speaking mysteries. What are mysteries biblically? things that were once hidden that are now revealed. And they're revealed to this guy and he's speaking them back to God. And he's wasting everybody else's time. So he is speaking mysteries. Now, notice in the spirit he's speaking mysteries. That means he's communicating information. These are not ecstatic sounds. These are not guttural noises that have no meaning. These are meaningful expressions of words Notice the word speaks also. Tongues is defined by speaking. So if anybody wants to make it anything other than expressing words, that's not what it means. It's speaking. Verse 3. But he who prophesies speaks, same word used, they're both speaking, he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Okay, so edification in the Greek, the idea of, of building up, you're teaching somebody and you're therefore building up their soul. That fits well with the analogy of the temple. As we're being built up, we're being remade. John Milton's definition of education is that you're seeking to restore the temple that is the ruins of man's soul. Right, That's what's happening here. So you have this building up. Prophesying builds up. The exhortation, this is the Verb form for paraclete. Paraclete's a noun that has to do with the idea of the comforter, the one who gives strength. Exhortation is, uh, I can't remember the verb. It's the verb form of that word. But it's comforting. So the idea of giving strength. And then it says comfort, which is kind of regrettable because that's what the exhortation does. So the better translation there is to console. Okay, the word for comfort there is really to console, which is kind of how we have come to use the word comfort in the modern English usage. We think about making people feel better, right? And so that's actually one of the effects of the word of God, is it consoles. But the, the idea of comforting comes from cum forte, right? With strength, forte. And so this idea of giving strength. So prophecy has the following effects. It builds people up with education. It strengthens people to action. And it consoles them to take away and reduce suffering. It takes away the sting of death and the evil of suffering in this life. But verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Do you see how plainly that teaches that a person who's speaking in tongues understands their own words? Okay. So if somebody's speaking in tongues and they don't know what they're saying, they're not speaking in tongues. So he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. So the value of prophecy comes from the edifying of the church. And the value of teaching comes from edifying the church. The value of tongues is edifying the church. Verse 5 I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. Why? Unless indeed he interprets. Oh, the understanding. That the church may receive edification. Okay? So prophecy is better than tongues unless the tongues are interpreted. But then prophecy is still more efficient. right? Because as opposed to having to have two lines of processing, foreign language, native language, you just get native language. Right? So it's twice as efficient. Verse 6. Now brethren, but now brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching. So in other words, if I come to you in a tongue, and I'm not giving you revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching, in other words, if I'm not speaking to you in a language that you understand, it's useless. Do you see how plainly this would be picked up by the Reformers to attack the Latin Mass? This text was used in the Reformation... To attack the Romish practice of the Latin Mass, you have the people not being educated. Hey, okay. you want to know the definition of absurdity? Jesuit missionaries came to the American Southwest to collect. What, what's the politically correct thing? Native Americans, American Indians—I uh, don't know. So, so uh, whichever the collecting of American Indians into monasteries and towns in order to get them to learn to sing Latin. Okay, so you have these people in the American Southwest being collected and singing in Latin. Is that not the height of absurdity? A people who have never been exposed historically to Latin being rounded up to sing in Latin. The uselessness of that is... Astounding. Now, there is no use to communication in words unless there is understanding. This applies even to singing. We're going to see the idea of bringing a psalm is brought up in the context later down. Verse 6, But now, brethren... If I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? All right, so imagine this. This is the analogy that's given. You have two sounds that are indistinguishable. And somebody says, follow the, sig- follow the signal. When I play this, do A. When I play this, do non-A. And both sounds sound exactly the same. And then the sound goes, and half of you do one thing and half do the other. Right? And you go, no, 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 you didn't follow the orders. Why? Because the sound was not discernible. So the idea of using musical instruments to give orders, this would be an analogy that points to military order. And the use of trumpets, drums, flutes, pipes, things that are able to be heard because they're either very high-pitched or very loud or very thunderous. These are things that were used historically for the giving of military orders. And if you cannot tell the difference between them, you're not going to know what's going on. So there's a story in the war between the states of two units from two different states that had a collection of trumpet order sounds. And one unit used a song for advance, and the other one used the exact same sound for retreat. And so they were supposed to, they were given an order to advance together. And so as they were trying to go forward together, one of them issued the order to advance, and the other group, which was surprised but they heard it and they wanted to follow the orders, they started to retreat. And the other one began to advance. And rather than having a united advance, that confusion of orders resulted in them doing the opposite things of what they were supposed to do. It got worked out. Eventually, the officers organized it, were able to get the orders forward to advance, but it broke up the consolidation of the advance. And so this is the kind of confusion that can occur. So uncertain sounds, that's the problem. The distinction of sounds not being present. Verse 8, For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? Verse 9. And that should also be a reminder going back to the books of Moses with the use of the silver trumpets for the call to assembly and the call for war and that sort of thing. So there's a signal given even in the Bible with that example. So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world and none of them is without significance. Notice that. Anybody who tells you that tongues are an ecstatic language that does not communicate anything by the sounds themselves is contradicting this verse right here. This says there are no languages without significance. In other words, there are no languages where the sounds don't have a meaning attached to them. So that's what's taught there. So this doctrine is so contrary to the nonsense doctrine of tongues that has somehow taken root in American evangelicalism. Verse 11, Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner. The more literal language there is a barbarian, but they have the same effect. I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks. And he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. We won't be able to communicate to each other if we use different languages. Even so, you, since you are zealous for Holy Spirit gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Okay, You want tongues real badly? That's great. That's delightful. That's wonderful. Now use them well. Don't use them to communicate badly or to communicate nothing. Use them to communicate properly. But guess what? You know how we use tongues really well right now? By not using them because they have ceased. And the only thing that you should care about with language is taking the words of the original text of the Bible and making sure you have a faithful translation in the language to be preached in. So that is the thing we are supposed to do with language now, is to make sure that there's teaching from the text that's good for the language of the people who are listening. Verse 10, There are, maybe so many kinds of languages in the world, none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are zealous for Holy Spirit gifts, Let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So excelling in edification, in educating others, in teaching. Verse 13. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Okay, great, you've been given the gift of tongues. Now ask for the gift of of interpretation. Because without interpretation, you're useless, or maybe somebody else can interpret for you, and that would make you useful. Therefore, let him who speaks in tongue who speaks in a tongue, pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now this gets grabbed, and people will lay this next to what was read earlier. Remember earlier on it says, he edifies himself? And they say, well, this verse cancels that. No, that's not how reading works. If you say two things that contradict, it doesn't just make one of them go away. It would make the script contradict itself, which would make it false. So, what we have to do is we have to say, when it said earlier that if you speak in tongues, you understand it, that's not being contradicted now. What's being said right now is this. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit... You know what spirit's being talked about there? Let's think about this. Is the spirit different from the mind? Because it says, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. The word for understanding there is noose which just means mind in Greek. So is it saying my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful? No. The point is the Holy Spirit. Capital S. Way better if that were there. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. Do believers possess the Holy Spirit? They do. For if I pray in a tongue, The Holy Spirit, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Does that mean I don't understand? No. You know why it's unfruitful? It doesn't bear the fruit of love. It doesn't use the gift in order to edify. How is it unfruitful? It's unfruitful in that it fails to edify. Speaking in tongues or praying in tongues without translating, without interpreting, is unfruitful for all of the reasons that Paul has just spent a long time explaining. Verse 15, what is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Holy Spirit. That's what it says, that's what it means. It says, I will pray with the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. I will pray with the Holy Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. In other words, I will apply my mind to think about and retain the information and to interpret it by explaining it to other people who are in my hearing pausing to explain is the idea think about on the alternative of that people getting up and flaunting a holy spirit power to speak in a language and just talking in this other language and then not interpreting it or after a long time trying to go back and interpret it if you ever listen to a sermon where somebody has an interpreter there's a number of them that are available online heart cry ministries uh Cockfighters missionaries have a lot of those, where they'll have somebody who speaks in English and they have a local interpreter. They do a lot of it in Eastern Europe. And so you'll hear them speak, and they speak a few sentences, two, three sentences. They pause, the other person translates. And they speak again, pause, the other person translates. Think about how hard it is as a translator for somebody else to remember everything that they said. Now imagine how much more complex it would be if you had to translate your own words. You'd have to do a couple of sentences at a time and then translate. And so this going back and forth, you can be your own interpreter, your own translator, but if you're translating for somebody else, also, you still need somebody to give you a break every few sentences so that they can have the translation. The longer you go without the interpreter being able to translate, the more complex the task becomes. It's going to overload the memory and make it impossible for them to be able to translate for you. So, this idea of applying the mind to translation is what the focus is on. So, I will pray with the Holy Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will seek to have my understanding, capture it so I can translate it. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? Verse 16 is a very important verse here is what it teaches you it teaches you that amen means you are expressing agreement with a prayer take note of that amen expresses that you are agreeing with a prayer this is given as an ordinance of god so that you can judge prayers if you're praying with somebody else you have to listen to what they're saying And you have to judge what they're saying. And if the form is wrong or the petitions are wrong, you should not say amen at the end of it. If it's a wrong prayer and you say amen, you are sinfully joining yourself with an evil prayer. The amen is you withholding your joining in the prayer until you have heard it and judged it. And when you say amen... It is your participating in the prayer. And that is why we say together amen. As opposed to just, why doesn't somebody just get up here and pray and then we all do nothing? The amen is an expression of agreement. And it is you participating in the prayer. So notice what this implies. It says, otherwise if you bless with the Spirit, so if there's a Holy Spirit blessing, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed, the one who wasn't able to be informed because the language was one he didn't understand, How will he say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? It's saying it would be unlawful. It would be unlawful for him to say amen, because he doesn't know what he's agreeing to. Which also, by the way, means you should not agree to things you don't understand. There's There's another general principle. Here are principles that we draw out of this text. So This text says you shouldn't agree to things you don't understand. And you shouldn't say amen to a prayer unless you understand it and you agree with it. When you say amen, you are participating in the prayer. If it's an idolatrous prayer, you participate in the idolatry. If it's an evil prayer in terms of the petitions put forward, you participate in those evil requests. Verse 17. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. Okay, get that. Notice how verse 17 again proves... The person speaking in tongues understands what they're saying because they understand what they're agreeing to. But the person who can't understand the language does not understand, is not edified, cannot say amen. Verse 18. Now, let me pause here for a second. People try to make this text really hard to get. But have you noticed how it's actually really simple? All it's saying is, Guess what, everybody? If you speak in a language other people don't understand, they're not going to understand it. And that's not useful because you need to understand things in order to be educated. And if you're going to grow in understanding, then you should have an interpreter so that people can grow in understanding. And also, don't agree to things that you don't understand. That's it. This is a simple text. And it takes people trying to cram a made-up practice of nonsense noises into a church to make it feel spiritual to make it so that we would have some other view. In the Reformation, this was broadly understood, and it was used to attack the nonsense doctrine of preaching in Latin in the Mass. And somehow this was lost. So, you have Pentecostals and Charismatics to thank for taking this very plain text and twisting it. And we need to recognize that that is a destroying of the meaning of the plain text that was given to us by God. And so 1 Corinthians has been largely thrown out in evangelical churches because there are so many parts of it that people hate. 1 Corinthians is a book that lets you hold preachers accountable. This is a church order book. It is a book of liturgy that is given to you, the saints, to hold officers accountable. And so the reason this has been twisted is to take power away from the congregation and to prevent them from holding accountable the preachers. Verse 18, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all, yet in the church I would rather speak, notice in the context of in the church, Right. so this is with other people in the public worship, in the assembly of God, or other people are required to be there, so if you go on too long and you're speaking in a language they don't understand, you can't just get up, you're like, oh, I've been called to assemble, I can't leave, so I gotta stop. I thank my God if I speak with tongues more than you all, and I speak with tongues more than you all, yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Notice how this lines up with Jesus' teaching that you should not offer up vain prayers. The piling up of vain words is useless. 10,000 words without communicating information is less useful than five words that communicate information. Five words that communicate information. I would be doing a better job getting up here and giving you a five-word sermon in English than getting up here and giving you a 10,000-word sermon in Russian. So when you think about that, you evaluate that. Now here's the other thing. What about people who speak good Anglo-Saxon, but they say nonsense? What about those preachers? Those preachers are violating the same principle. If you have people teaching contradictory doctrine, so they get up here and give you a bunch of words in the language you understand, and they say contradictory things, guess what they've just done with their 10,000 words? They've made their 10,000 words into a foreign language because it's meaningless. They've killed off the significance to you. So often preachers will give with one hand and take away with the other. God is sovereign, but not really. Justification is by faith alone, except when it's not. Grace is unmerited favor, but also it's not omnipotent grace. It's grace that you have to do the thing, and then only the people who do that are the ones that get the grace. And so, kind of not unmerited favor. right? When you have the taking away with the left hand, what the right hand is given, you have the tearing down, of the meaning. And so preachers that contradict themselves, that make it so that they're not edifying, need to be pulled down from the pulpit. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brethren, Do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, be babes. But in understanding, be mature. So don't be children in understanding. Be mature in understanding. Be immature in hatred. See, we have love. Be mature in love. Be immature in hatred. Be mature in doctrine, not immature in doctrine. And so, as we think about that, and as we consider the need to be mature in doctrine, Think about how much of a curse tongues would be if you didn't have an interpreter. And so, here's the next thing. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet, for all that, they will not hear me. That's a curse. If you are the nation of Israel and people are speaking to you in other tongues, what's happening is you have an occupying force there. Or you have priests that are not of your own people. And only the Levites were supposed to be priests. And so if you have people teaching you in a foreign tongue, then those people teaching in a foreign tongue are a curse to you. So what we have, this is in Deuteronomy twenty-eight forty-nine, Isaiah 28, 1, 11, and then also Isaiah 33, verse 19, and you have this in Jeremiah 5, verse 15, this idea that's brought up. So Deuteronomy 28, Isaiah 28, Isaiah 33, Jeremiah 15. Sorry, is there Jeremiah 5. These are the places where this idea gets brought up. And so this idea of people speaking in tongues, they are coming and it's a curse. Who are the people that this curse applies to at this time? At the writing of 1 Corinthians, the curse that came was on the people of Israel because they had rejected Christ. And so people speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2 on the Temple Mount was a fulfillment of this prophecy, and here was the curse. Hey, guess what? You've rejected Christ. And guess what's going to happen to this city? It's going to be destroyed. And you won't understand in plain Hebrew. You won't understand in plain Aramaic. You won't understand in Greek the most common languages around you. You won't understand in Latin. You remember the sign that Pontius Pilate wrote and put on top of the cross? A bunch of languages there. Okay, you won't believe this. You won't believe this testimony. Then, fine, there will be other languages here the languages of men whom you do not understand. And that was a sign of curse. It's a sign of curse, and we're going to see Paul explain how that works. Verse 22 Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. So when there was speaking in tongues in the middle of the temple, in the middle of Jerusalem, that was a sign for unbelievers. That was a sign for Judah, for Israel, as an unbelieving nation. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, what you'd expect Paul to say after that is, therefore, you go in tongues and you evangelize to people and you speak in prophecy to the church and you build them up. But that is not what Paul says. And you hear some people have this doctrine of there's a continuation of the gift of tongues out on the periphery. As missionaries go forth, they have tongues out on the periphery and it's used to convert unbelievers because it's a sign for unbelievers. And you bring them into the church Okay, well, let's see. How does Paul explain this? What does he say? Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're out of your mind? What is this? This isn't the tongues is going to go out and be used by missionaries and it's going to bring in the Hutu Hutu tribe, and you're going to finally get to speak to them with all the proper clicks, and they'll understand. Ah, three clicks means atonement. No, that is not what is being said here. What is being said here is when you speak in tongues and people walk in, they're going to think you're crazy. And what does it do? It pushes them away. They don't stick around. Okay. Verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Now this is not somebody here is feeling guilty about loving cars too much. That's not the revealing the secrets of the heart. This is not the thing that's going on. What's being talked about is that as you prophesy the law of God, The Ten Commandments give an inventory to you of the makeup of human nature. And when you prophesy by preaching the Word of God, the law of God is living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it takes the living and makes them dead, and it separates the indivisible, and it makes very sharp distinctions very sharply. And the effect is that people hear the Word of God, and they are converted. It's a sign for believers, not just that it's only for believers, but it's a sign that makes believers. It's not a sign for judgment, although it does cause judgment. Its principal purpose is to bring believers and to bring blessing. Verse 25. And thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. If you read the Westminster Larger Catechism on the Ten Commandments and you don't find on every page something that convicts you, and you're like, it read my mind. and If you don't have that effect, you're not thinking about it very deeply. The law of God gives an inventory of your sins very powerfully. Verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm? has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification, right? You, know, you, you, you come to the church and you go, I really want to sing this psalm. Is it just because you feel like singing that psalm, or do you think it's going to be edifying? Has a teaching, okay? Do, do you want to teach something that's useful for the church, or is this in tongues? Is this something that's what the church needs to hear? Is it a hobby horse you have? If you have a tongue, do you have an interpreter? You have a revelation, okay? Do that in order. Do you have an interpretation? Okay, that needs to line up with something. Are you going to interpret the tongues? Are you interpreting a text? What are you doing? So let all of it be done for edification. That right there, let all things be done for edification, is pulled together. And you look at the form of government, the form of Presbyterian church government, that's one of the verses that's put up on that beginning section. And in that beginning section of Presbyterian church government, it lays that out, and it says also let everything be done in order. Let everything be done in order, in decency, and let it be done for edification. Those are principles that are typically associated with Presbyterian church order. And that's because that's what the scriptures teach. Verse 27, If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. so there needs to be an interpretation so that it's edifying and there need to be two or at most three why? because there need to be two public teachings or three public teachings if you do less you don't have two witnesses if you do more you are causing it to be burdensome that's what's given two or three each in turn so you're not speaking at the same time you're not like competing by who can speak the loudest in the corner you are having them take turns Verse 28. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church. Now, Paul is really good at setting people up. Now, if you've read forward, when he says, let him keep silent in church, he's going to later say the thing that everybody hates now, which is let women keep silent in church. Now, when he says silent here, what he means is silent. And when he says it about prophets, what he means is silent. And when he's talking about women, he means don't let them authoritatively be pastors. This is the popular evangelical, we're not giving up on the Bible reading. Okay? That's not what it means. You know what it means? It means let them be silent. It means don't talk. It means don't talk in the public assembly. That is what is being communicated. These words are not meaningless. They are not signs without meaning. They are meaningful. Verse 28, but if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church. And let him speak to himself and to God. In private, in other words. Let two or three prophets speak. Same principle of the two or three witnesses. And let the others judge. Okay, and so that's what you're doing right now. You're judging. I pray for that frequently. That's the verse I steal it from. Verse 30. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. When it says keep silent, what it means is that the first guy who's talking should stop talking. His mouth should be shut unless he's catching flies. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So if somebody gets up and says, I've got to prophesy right now because the Holy Spirit's urging me on. That is false. That is not what the doctrine of Scripture teaches. It teaches that the prophets can control themselves. They can control when they speak and when they don't speak. And so, for the sake of order, they should not speak while somebody else is speaking. If they have something to say, they need to go through the orderly process of becoming the next to speak. The other person stops, and then they start speaking. This would apply not only in the public worship, it would apply in the church in general, which is why we seek to have an orderly proceeding for discussion in the assembly of the court. That is also the church assembled. It is the church assembled for government. For you can all prophesy one by one, and all may learn, and all may be encouraged. Verse 32, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. As in, and that, there should be a period right there. This is a bad translation. So, just so you know, there are no commas, or periods, or semicolons, or quotation marks, or any punctuation in the original Greek. That is all interpretive, and in being interpretive, it is put in by the translators. So, what would be best here to get the sense of the text is to put a period where that comma is. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, period. That ends very well. It explains very well. It helps to make clear the point that has been made. It's a punctuating end. The next sentence would be explaining verse 34. And this fits very well with chapter 11, verse 1, that says, Hey, everybody. You should keep the apostolic traditions. And then in chapter 11, at verse 16, it says, Now, if anybody disagrees, this is contrary to the tradition of the churches. Okay? So when it's talking about the idea of not prophesying or praying with the head uncovered for a woman, it's saying this is the tradition of the churches, and it's the apostolic tradition. Now the same sort of thing is happening. As in all the churches of the saints, let your women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. So, this is true in all the churches. This is to happen in the church. They're not permitted to speak. They're to be silent. But they are to be submissive. And there's an appeal to the Old Testament, as the law also says. The effort to explain this away was clearly foreseen by God, because he put all those reasons around it. It has basically the Fort Knox of reasons. You've just got layer after layer of reasons. You have to find a way to chop away to get to a feminist interpretation. And we've done it. Verse 35. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. Another layer to Fort Knox. The point is, even question asking is supposed to occur by the men. Because question asking leads where the discussion is going to go. So even if there's not an exhortation being given, there's not a didactic teaching being given, even the question asking is not to be done by the women in the church. This also means, guess who can ask questions? Men. How many churches do you know of where the pastors let the men ask them questions in public? What did Jesus do? What did the apostles do? What does this say? Hey men, if you go to a church and they don't ask you ask questions, guess what they're saying you are. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. Guess what this is? This is God's design to make the wife follow the husband and to push the husband to figure it out. Guess what husbands tend towards? Laziness and neglect. Guess what asking questions at home does? Makes your husband have to figure it out. And if he won't figure it out, then eventually you're going to raise it to a Matthew 18, step 2, and go, my husband won't figure this out. And you're going to bring people in. And guess what that's going to do? It's going to make the husband very embarrassed. And you know what men are driven by? Respect. And so that process is to push men to have to do their job. And so this is God's design to make that happen. Is the point here that women aren't supposed to learn, or that women can't speak, or the fact that women are somehow not rational, or that men need to degrade women? No. This is God's design to make the household with representation by men as the head of the house have to do their job and to push them to figure it out and to make it so that they work well and it makes it so that there's this order with the man protecting the woman and making it so that he takes on the public conflicts. It helps to maintain a chain of command. Verse 35, And If they want to learn something, and they should, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is shameful For women to speak in church. I want you to think about the amount of scripture twisting that has gone on to take this text and make it mean nothing. Verse 36. Or did the word of God come originally from you? What's that question about? The question is, Paul is dealing with people who don't want to accept his apostolic authority... And the women want to speak, and they want to speak without wearing head coverings. Why do they want to speak without wearing head coverings? Because the head coverings remind them of the authority of their husbands or of their patriarch. And they don't want that reminder. They just want to get up and speak. And so in order to speak in public, they've taken off the head coverings. So Paul started with, hey, wear the head covering. And then also don't speak. Right? If you're going to pray or prophesy, make sure to do it with your head covering on. Oh, by the way, don't speak. That's what he did. Paul's very good at this. He's very good at pushing to set you up for the fall. And he makes it so that as you follow along the argument, if you accept the earlier part, you've gotten trapped. And so that's what he's doing here, and that's what he does with food. With food and with order in the church, he does both things where he kind of sets up an easier thing. Hey, if you're going to eat food dedicated to idols, don't do it in a way that's going to make your brother stumble, right? Right? Also, I have the right to eat food for doing work, right? Right? But guess what? I've given up that right to not offend my brother. You, who aren't paying me. You should pay me. Also, you shouldn't eat food dedicated to idols, because when you do that, you're eating food dedicated to demons, and you shouldn't do that and come to the Lord's table. Women, don't pray with your heads uncovered or prophesy with your heads uncovered. That would be bad. That would be disorderly, right? And you need to do this. And so, also, if you speak, you are doing something shameful, and women should keep silent in the churches. Right? That's the thing that's being taught. So when you have that laid out, Paul is making it so that it's very clear what's supposed to happen. Some people will go and they'll look at 1 Corinthians 11 and they'll say, it doesn't really make any sense. Paul's saying you shouldn't speak without your head, without your head being covered. But then he says you shouldn't speak. Those don't make any sense. And it's like, yeah, it does. This makes total sense. It's like saying don't speed through a red light. Also, don't speed. That's it. That's what it says. There's nothing contradictory about that. It's just like if you're trying to talk to somebody and they don't want to care about speeding, you might say, hey, let's not speed through red lights at least, right? Are we all going to agree on this? Can we all agree not speeding through red lights? And they go, yeah, sure. Okay, but also don't speed. That's the way the argument goes. It's not a contradiction. It's taking a more narrow scenario and then it's going to a broader scenario. It's taking two negatives, and then it's adding one negative. It is not a contradiction, and it's not a problem. They are reconcilable. There's nothing about them that's at odds. Verse 36. Or did the word of God come originally from you? So you're going to listen to me. I'm Paul. You're going to listen to the other churches, and this is what's done in all the other churches. Or was it you only that it reached? Are you the only church that's reached this, that's received this? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, in other words, having Holy Spirit gifts, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. He's saying these are Jesus' commandments. And if you won't acknowledge these things, then you're showing yourself to not be spiritual, you're showing yourself to not be a prophet. That's his point. He's he's raising, he's ratcheting up the conflict. He's saying, all right, fine, we disagreed on something that seemed relatively minor. We disagreed about what should be done with women in the public assembly. But guess what? Since we're at conflict about this and you're simply denying what has been revealed by the prophetic word, I'm going to ratchet this up. Let's make this into a we have to divide sort of thing. If you don't accept what I'm saying, you're denying the authority of the Holy Spirit and you're denying the commandment of the Lord and you're denying my apostleship. He's raised the stakes. And man, this is something we're required to do sometimes. We can piddle around at the edges. We can play around. We can fight. We can, we can kind of you know, wrestle over things for a bit. But sometimes it becomes obvious that somebody simply doesn't want to apply what the Word of God is saying. And when it's time, when you've made it very clear, when you've laid out what the Scriptures say, and you've shown it to be plainly written, and they don't want to do or believe what it says, sometimes you just say, maybe you're not a Christian then. Because Christians believe the word of God. So do you believe the word of God or not? This is the conflict we're required to do sometimes. So you have to go through patiently the process. And Paul is ratcheting up the opposition. Verse 38. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Okay. In other words, you want to deny this thing, you're going to deny that you were holding to the Christian faith. But if you just want to shut your mouth and claim to not know, great. Don't talk about it. Verse 39, Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. All right. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights? Mr. and I? Yeah, so contrary to people who interpret that to mean that would suggest that tongues should be used on the mission field, right? contrary to that, instead, tongues are a sign of judgment. Judgment. It's a sign for unbelievers that points to their judgment. And that's why the sign of tongues was given in Jerusalem after the rejection of Christ. So that it won't understand? Right. So the people who said, they're drunk, that sign was for them. Okay. for their judgment and so that makes the that makes the the uh, the reference that's given earlier from um, yeah from the Old Testament that makes that makes sense okay thank you so that alright we're good let's pray Father, we ask that you would teach us out of your word, that you would renew us after the image of Christ, that you would cause us to use these spiritual gifts well. We ask that you would cause teaching to be done decently and in order, that you would cause us to be able to speak so as to edify, that you would cause us to apply the principles to help us to have multiple witnesses. Father, we thank you for the minimal element right now of having somebody read the word and somebody else teach. We ask that you would give us a more mature example of that having multiple teachings in the assembly and we ask that you would help us to see more and more the manifest order that has been given to us all gospel officers and ordinances we ask that you would help us to communicate to others well the order of the churches and that they would see well the things that ought to be done to make it so that there is a chain of command where men are encouraged to lead and to teach and women are encouraged to support their husbands and these things function well together We pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.